a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a special introduction from Martin Scorsese ahead of the premiere of Personality Crisis One Night Only from the 60th New York Film Festival, followed by a Q&A with directors Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi, subject David Johansson, executive producer Mara Hennessy, producer Margaret Bode, and Leah Hennessy, moderated by FLC programmer Dan Sullivan. Continuing his vibrant and invaluable documentaries about iconic American artists and musicians, such as George Harrison, Living in the Material World, No Direction Home, Bob Dylan, and the Fran Lebowitz portrait, Public Speaking, Martin Scorsese turns his camera on another beloved New York institution, the singular David Johansson. Equally celebrated as the lead singer-songwriter of the androgynous 70s glam-punk groundbreakers, the New York Dolls, and for his complete reinvention as Hepcat, Lounge, Lizard, Buster, Poindexter in the 80s, the chameleonic Johansson has created an entire genre onto himself, combining swing, blues, and rock for something at once mischievous and deeply personal. In Personality Crisis One Night Only, Scorsese and co-director David Tedeschi, with the help of cinematographer Alan Kuras, luminously captured the entertainer's January 2020 Cafe Carlisle set, where he performs as Poindexter singing the Johansson songbook, bringing downtown irreverence to the storied uptown joint. Presented alongside new and archival interviews, the concert is marvelously intimate and a testament to both a lost New York and a performer who remains as fresh and exciting as ever. Personality Crisis One Night Only opens this year. This evening, at, at today's two evening screenings here at Alice Tully Hall, we're marking the 60th anniversary of this festival. And we can think of no better way to mark that occasion than by the person I'm about to bring out, who will then bring someone else out. Um, the man I'm about to introduce has a 25-year history with this festival and this organization. And he is one of the cornerstones upon which this festival has been built and grown. And it's because of him and a number of his colleagues over the years that we are all together to experience not only this film tonight, but this festival here in New York. Please join me in welcoming the Emeritus Director of the New York Film Festival, Mr. Richard Pena. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be up here, and thank you very much, Eugene, for that very generous introduction. Uh, the person I'm going to introduce you to is somebody who, in lots of ways, encapsulates this festival. Uh, when you think about it, he started out, just like all of you, sitting in the audience watching great films and taking in some of those experiences, and eventually becoming one of the people who had films on our screens. Films such as Italian American, Mean Streets, After Hours, The Irishman. If there's anything about Martin Scorsese that for me totally, in a way, mirrors what I like to think the festival embodies, it's first an extraordinary respect for the history of cinema. I remember back in 1980 when he did this amazing presentation here about color preservation 
at how, in fact, we were losing our color films. And really, I often think the whole interest in film preservation on a national level, maybe even a global level, really began with that presentation. The respect that you see in all of his films when he brings in elements and influences from so many different places and makes them very much his own. The second is that Martin Scorsese is very much a filmmaker. Whatever film you'll see from Martin Scorsese uses the resources and the art of this medium to simply their fullest extent. It's always a pleasure to see one of his films, always a great pleasure to be in the same room with him. Please welcome Martin Scorsese. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. Um, so I've been, you know, asked to say um, a few words about tonight being the 60th anniversary of uh, the New York Film Festival. Um, you know, this place is, uh, this festival really has been um, a home, a spiritual home for uh, myself and other filmmakers around the world. Um, the first festival, uh, Richard Roud and Amos Vogel uh, put that together. Uh, I remember opening the papers, 1963. So I was opening the papers and I see this, this lineup, you know, films by Bresson and Bunuel and um, Melville and um, uh, Rene and Olmi and uh, Chris Marker and Polanski and Losi and, you know, but I couldn't afford to go. So I couldn't see any of them. And the thing was, they had this great, um, they had this great commercial. And it, it, was, on, it was also uh, an image on the, uh, the first program uh, of the first uh, New York Film Festival. And that was a, uh, you know, a, a, a film case, a film, a really heavy metal case and film cans. And um, uh, uh, they had this beautiful black and white commercial where a guy was delivering this giant can of film and, put it in a projector and it, you know, thread up the projector and the light hit the screen and it said, this film be shown only once. And this is the place to see it. That's it. And in many cases too, a lot of the films we're looking, uh, that we were looking at here hadn't had distributors yet. So this was an important thing because maybe some distributor wouldn't pick it up. So you had to rush to get to see it that one time. Um, uh, I did make it here for the second year. Uh, and that's because I had a short film here uh, from uh, the uh, student films, you know. And that year, to, to be at the press screenings. Now, mind you, that wasn't Alice Tully Hall. That was what was then called Avery Fisher Hall. And the place was gigantic. And they said the projection wasn't very good, but I couldn't tell that it was fine for me. Um, and the revelations at that festival for me, Pasolini, I saw for the first time. Uh, Miklos Janchos, uh, uh, the Roundup, um, the, the the incredible Bellocchio is still making wonderful films, and uh, that day I'll never forget seeing um, seeing before the revolution uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, and he was there, and I'll never forget him coming out on the promenade, buttoning his jacket, and everybody taking pictures of him. I. I was quite overwhelmed by by that picture, and it was a great, great inspiration. Um, 
And so each year, um, it was a, a place where you saw, let alone Jean-Luc Godard films, about two or three a year. They were always being screened. So uh, each, each screening, each film was pretty much a revelation of pure narrative, uh, pure, I should say, how to tell a story with pictures. Um, and from different aspects, all parts of the world. Um, so 1968, I did have a short film here um, uh, in the actual full program, and that was called The Big Shave. And, <laughs> and it was supposed to be shown with, um, I forget which film was going to be shown, and I was having dinner with my friend Jay Cox and his wife, Verna Bloom, and we're on 82nd Street, and we get a phone call. They're going to show it tonight. So what do you mean? They changed it. They changed. They're going to show with Godard's Weekend. <laughs> I said what? With Weekend? Are you mad? They're, no, they're going to do it. You got to get over here and just stand in the back and watch, which is what we did, and it was great. The film is only six minutes, but halfway through, people started booing and hissing, <laughs> and people were laughing. It was great. It was an incredible experience. Um, <laughs> we were all prepared. You know, we're going to go the next night to see it. No, it was being shown then with Godard. I said, my God. So the um, next time uh, was a year later, two years, no, a few years later. What am I saying? A year is 73, the 11th New York Film Festival, and it was uh, Mean Streets. Um, and in Mean Streets, uh, you know, uh, it was a film I had, to, you know, was burning to make, took a number of years to pull it together. And there I was, my mother and father, sitting uh, here in Alice Telly Hall by that point. And um, the, uh, the film comes up and, and I was, I realized, oh my God, people are gonna see this. And it went very well, it went very well. There were some people booing, but it was okay. Uh, there was only a few. And um, I went out to the, to, the, to the lobby out there and my mother and father were with me. Uh, and uh, my mother went up to every person who was standing there, and she kept saying, I just want you to know, we never use that word in the house. <laughs> and she was right. We didn't, you know, I was making a, a gutter vernacular film, in a sense, and we were never allowed to use that language, uh, any of those words. Uh, they, were, they were quite taken by it. Um, it was it was it was quite a moment, um, and over the years I've been here. I've shown a few documentaries: Italian American, American Boy, um, two feature films. Um, but really, a lot of the a lot of the films I uh, have shown the restorations here of the Film Foundation and the World Cinema uh, Project. Um, that that for me is a real a real joy because part of part of the original I don't know we can go on for a while but part of the original uh, festival always had sidebars and there was one sidebar in 1970 Visconti had just died they showed but they showed all of his films it was an extraordinary thing um, the sidebars were remarkable uh, or showing um, when Raoul put Richard Raoul put on uh, Les Vampires the Foulade uh, series and they cut out all this all the intertitles and they just showed it with no intertitles it didn't matter I mean, you kind of, there was no story anyway. It was a serial. So <laughs> it was five hours, you know. Napoleon, before it was really put together by, uh, um, by Kevin Brownlow, was still working on it. It was a remarkable experience. Um, I mean, last time I was here, we did the opening night in 2019 of The Irishman. <laughs> and, 
at that time, Kent Jones was uh, the head of the festival, and I we did a little we would do little conversations sometimes uh, with the Lincoln Center group here. And that that time we decided to do a little conversation with a we started with a crazy clip from uh, Hugo Haas films, and we took it down that road. Um, uh, that was the year he stepped down as the festival director to continue directing his own pictures, and Dennis Lim and Eugene Hernandez took over. Um, Kent Jones had, had come back here to take the reins from Richard Pena when he stepped down in 2012, and Richard followed Richard Rowe in 1988. You know, six extraordinary individuals, uh, Vogel, Amos Vogel, who I'm, whom I'm proud to say I was a friend, a friend of, Richard Rowe, Richard Pena, Kent Jones, and Eugene, who is now moving on to Sundance, and Dennis Lim. Um, I, ha I have to say that these guys have been guardians of this great art form that just burned inside me, is lit a fire inside me. Um, and as I said before, this, this film is, uh, this festival is a, a spiritual home for filmmakers and the art of cinema, particularly important now uh, when cinema is uh, devalued, demeaned, um, belittled from all sides. Uh, not necessarily the business side, but certainly the art. Uh, and since the 80s, there's been, you know, a focus on numbers. Uh, that is, uh, and it, it's kind of repulsive. It's like, of course, the cost of a movie is one thing. We understand that a film costs a certain amount. They expect to at least get the amount back. Plus, I get it. But the emphasis is now on numbers, cost, the opening weekend, uh, how much you made in USA, how much you made in uh, England, how much you made in Asia, how much you made in the, the entire world, um, how many views it got. And as a filmmaker and as a person who can't imagine life without cinema, um, you know, I've always find it really insulting. And I've always known that such considerations had no place at the New York Film Festival. And here's the key also with this. There are no awards here. Get it? You don't have to compete. You just have the love of cinema here. There's just cinema. Huh? So please keep it that way. I want to thank you and everybody happy 60th anniversary. I can't believe it's 60 years since I opened that newspaper. Okay. <laughs> Apparently that's what they're telling me. Um, so tonight's movie, um, we made this film. Um, and I want to mention some names before we go move on. Uh, um, it's called, um, it's called uh, Personality Crisis from One Night Only. Okay? So you have all the crises you want for one night. Um, for I want to thank Showtime, uh, Vinnie Malho uh, Malhotra, um, Imagine, uh, Ronnie Howard, Brian Grazer, Justin Wilkes, Sarah Bernstein, doing it, okay? And our filmmaking team, my co-director, David Tedeschi, is he out here? Come on, David, okay. David, um, Ellen Curis, who shot it, she's in Budapest directing her own film right now. She sends her love. Um, Margaret Bodie, who's producing. Come on out, Margaret. Randy Poster, is Randy here? 
somewhere? Not backstage, he's always in the theater. I know he's here, I know he's here. He's hiding, okay. Um, Randy, okay. Uh, Jack Douglas and Jay Messina, who produced and mixed the uh, Cafe Carlisle tracks. And additionally, this footage we got from this great guy, it's great stuff this guy did, Bob Gruen. It was really fantastic. Uh, also, Wal uh, Walker Lamond and uh, Greg Whiteley and uh, the great Harry Smith. Okay. The main thing here is, um, the main talent here is really David Johansson. And here he is. David Johansson. Mara Hennessy. And, and Leah Hennessy. Okay. What do you say? We show them the film or what? All right, we better show it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. I'm so glad that Richard Pena didn't give away the entire plot of this movie. I can't believe I'm on stage with David Johansson right now. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, we're, we're like a little bit pressed for time, so I'm gonna get right into it and uh, open yeah, it up. Yeah, talk fast. <laughs> We'll open it up to the audience early, too, because so, we want to hear from them, of course. But um, maybe I could just start with a, a not very original question, but I think a sensible one. Um, could we, I just wanted to ask about the, about the origins of both uh, the film, but also the performance at the Carlisle, um, and how, how both things came about. And it seems like uh, the timing of everything is just especially significant, given what happened only like a month and a half after, <laughs> after that happened. So I, I think you could all sort of uh, talk talk about this. David would start. David would sure. start. I think on on how you work at the cafe. I think. Uh, oh yeah. Well, I, I, I work the cafe Carlisle. Uh, I don't know. I've done like two week residencies there, maybe eight times or something. So we played this time, and then Mara called Marty. Why don't you tell him what what happened? Yeah, David and I were living at the Roxy Hotel in Tribeca, and we were booked to play two weeks at the Cafe Carlisle. And David was kind of in a mood, <laughs> and not so enthusiastic about doing the two weeks as Buster Poindexter at the Carlisle. And he said, I think I'm just going to sing David Johansson songs. And... He told a couple of stories around the songs, stories from his childhood and his teenage years and New York City stories. And we wrote them down. And he went and did this two-week run at the Carlisle. And it was so good, we didn't want it to end. And I was calling everybody and tweeting them and writing them. I got like Harvey Fierstein and no one was interested. We wanted to go to Broadway. David said, we're taking this to Broadway. <laughs> so I called Marty. 
And I said, will you come see this show and, you know, give us some guidance? And he showed up with, like, Margaret and David Tedeschi and Lisa and Helen, Helen, his whole entourage, his whole family. And he said, I'm going to film this. He said, don't ask me about theater. (laughs) That's what he said. And one thing led to another. And um, I feel like I'm dominating this Q&A, you guys. Uh, I'm on a roll here. Um, (laughs) And I think Marty and and, uh, Margaret and... David Tedeschi were kind of planning to like easy does it, wait a little while, maybe film it like next summer, you know, July 2020 or something. This was in like, this was in like uh, May 2019 when we'd written this show. And um, I don't know what it was, you guys. I really don't know what it was. I mean, some people call me a witch, but... um, I just had this feeling that we needed to get it done sooner than that. So we all got together and had a lot of meetings and lots of like Pellegrino, lots of espresso, and we made it happen at the Carlisle for David's 70th birthday. January 2020. And you all know what happened after that then it was the end of the world. Yep. <laughs> but we got it all, like, you know, Ellen Curas, everybody got it all done, got the show in the, got the, show in the can, January 2020. We were also rushing because Marty was about to go well, out. I had to go and do that film and in go, Oklahoma. He was about to make Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers of the so Flower Moon. So we were like, Moon. we got to get it done. <laughs> but that was then delayed, as we all know. Uh, the yeah, I, I, right before you called me though, it was Lisa and I were in uh, were at the Carlisle. It was an odd thing because I had to do something with some tailors that arrive and they they show up there and I meet them up there. And um, I saw your picture in the elevator. I said, "Oh, David's going to be here." She goes, "Oh, let's go." And then I think somehow that all connected, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, when I went in uh, Tomas. Ah, Mr. Scorsese, some champagne for you. So we had champagne. <laughs> but I had seen I had seen you at the place called the Winery, yeah, you know, with the Randy Poster, yeah, where we were doing vinyl. Remember? Yeah. You know. We had pizza. Yeah, that's right. And we met we met everybody afterwards. But what was interesting to me, and David and, and Margaret and, and Helen and I were looking at each other and. Uh, the music itself, some of the songs I was not really aware of. I mean, I heard Heart of Gold at the winery, and um, it clicked. Uh, something was very moving uh, to me in it. And that night at the Cafe Carlisle, um, the series, I don't know what the lineup was, I forget now, it may have been very much this, but um, we all looked at each other afterwards, and she looked at me and David and said, well, I guess, you, what, do you, what do you think? I said, well, look, got to film it. And that's how it all started. It may have started before that a bit, but I'd become, I became aware that to actually yeah. film it. Yeah, well, I, you know, at the winery, I, I did like the, the old songs, the good songs. <laughs> but uh, 
This was the first time I ever did like all my own songs. Yeah, it was really nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm. It, you know, was very moving. We 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 shot it in two nights. Yeah, I I wanted to um, I, so I wanted to ask uh, I guess uh, particularly like you and David about um about the actual the the process of filming the performance and sort of how you strategize that and of course uh, Ellen Curtis came up. Uh, Ellen, early. yeah, she's yeah. in Budapest now and sends her love. She's right directing on. a film in Budapest. Yeah, um, and uh, she's a longtime collaborator, and and uh, uh, she um, is brilliant always. So I was I was I was kind of hoping to hear a bit about um, sort of uh, how how you guys decided to approach uh, the act of filming and uh, performance and you know single location, uh, you know. Well, David, you're he's my co-anchor here, co-director on this, and uh, what did we do? Well, the challenge is it's a very small space. Um, there aren't that many cameras that you can have in there. So we had, four, we had four cameras. Every project I've ever worked on that's a live performance, and Ellen Curris also, you end up using 90% from one night. So the first night we had four cameras, and then the second night we had four cameras. Um, we ended up using material from both nights. And, um, and that's why you have all the different angles. And both nights, Ellen was, you know. She was on, <laughs> she was she was on camera, yeah. She was, she was getting them through the glasses. I, and I think it's great because she gets right in your face, <laughs> yeah. but yet she's not bothersome, you know? I mean, you can kind of, like, ignore her. That's, a, that's an art. And, I mean, I can't get into how, how the sound was worked out. I don't even know. Margaret, you know? We had a, a, a sound truck that, was, that typically captures very large live events. And we knew that we would want to do a multi-track recording and be able to use, you know, all kinds of variations. Um, and the guys that did it were fantastic. Jay Bakari and his team. Um, and, yeah, they gave us amazing stuff to work with. And then your longtime producer, Jack Douglas and um, Jay Messina produced and mixed those tracks for the film. So that's why it sounds so great. Right on. Um, yeah. So like, like I said, I wanted to open up to the audience as soon as possible, but just before we do, uh, uh, so think about your questions. Um, I just want to ask David, you know, uh, now looking, you know, now having seen the film at the end of this, this whole for lack of a better way to put it, journey that started uh, earlier than January 2020, but we'll, we'll use January 2020 maybe as a as an origin point. Um, uh, you know, what are your impressions now looking now looking at the film, now looking at this period, uh, both you know in January a few years ago, but also like your entire your entire life and career, and and you know all this material, like revisiting all this material, sort of like how did that. Uh, how that affect you, you know? Well, um, a lot of things, really. Um, I'm much more musical than I thought I was. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it to me, this the movie is really great. Like I, I hardly do any cringing while it's on, which is <laughs> really good because. Like when you're in something and you're watching yourself, it can be like really cringy, but uh, it's not. It's 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 these guys did a great job. It's like a loving portrait, you know. So 
I don't really have any uh, complaints about that. And my whole life, uh, you know, I think about my, myself as, you know, in my whole life, so rarely, because I'm usually just like here, you know, that um, it's interesting to see. But I think you have to also ask, uh, you have to ask Leah, because Leah shot all the wonderful stuff at their house and in the yard and did the interviews. He's a great filmmaker. Say a few words. I was, uh, I was really prepared to make a joke when you just asked him that. I thought he was going to give like a monosyllabic answer and I was going to say, like, you see how easy it is to interview this guy. You know, um, but um, but that, was very, that was very moving, David, and polysyllabic. Great job. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I just think you are someone, this wasn't a question that was put to me, I'm just saying something, but um, you are someone who really lives in the present in, to a marked degree. You are like, you know, pasta, car, gar- flower, stage. Like you are, you know, you're a very thoughtful person, but you don't think about uh, the past. I think you think about the past less than almost anyone I know. So it was a real challenge ruffling your feathers and forcing you to reflect on the past and tell stories. And you were always kind of saying, you already know that. Why are you asking me about that? You know, <laughs> and, like, and, um, and I had to kind of play dumb and be like, tell me about this thing. Um, but, uh, but this is such a loving portrait of your whole life. And it's interesting to hear that you are interested in your past. I didn't say I was interested. <laughs> <laughs> saying that you're not uh, cringing though that's no, that's cringing. improved it's, it's that's great beautiful, it's a beautiful object I agree and I'm very appreciative yeah the first time David and I saw the penultimate screening he said well that's a version of myself I can live with <laughs> yeah because you know you just, in the wrong hands, yeah. this could have been one of the most sordid stories. <laughs> that's the next, that's the sequel. That's the next part we're going to do. All right, do we, uh, do we have any questions in the audience about this beautiful objet? Um, we'll, we'll start in the back over here. started like when you were making Mean Streets, right? Yeah, 72, 73. Yeah. So Marty used to rile up his actors before fight scenes by playing the Dolls record. (laughs) 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 They were like, you know, Four Seasons people. That's right, exactly. And then... uh, (laughs) That's what got them. Similarly, um, Sylvain and myself were... uh, wandering around one summer night and we were walking past uh, I can't remember the name of the cinema but it was on um, like 5th Avenue and 13th Street I think Um, you know a little artsy kind of theater clean though so it was hot and we wanted to get a little air conditioning 
and we went in there, and Mean Streets was playing, which we hadn't even, you know, heard of. And um, at first, I mean, I, I might have smoked a joint before I went in, I can't remember, but I really thought um, it was a documentary. <laughs> until they started like going at it, you know. So uh, it was a beautiful film, I just loved it. So we've kind of uh, been in each other's orbit since then. Well, I mean, the, uh, the, the Dolls record, I mean, I never saw the Dolls, I never went to Max's Kansas City to, you know, we, I was there, Jonathan Taplin was the producer of Mean Streets, would take me there to dinner and stuff, but I was never part of that scene. I was around it, I was more involved with uh, Jonas Mikas and Adolphus and uh, Sam Brackage films at Emshvilla and all of that. So um, uh, it, it, my thing was, uh, uh, I suddenly saw I, saw, I heard this song, Personality Crisis. And uh, the power, the, the rhythm and blues basis of it, of course, but the energy of it and already the, the sense of humor of it, you know, particularly when, I, when he sings, yeah, 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 and then the band answers, no, no, no. I said, okay, we're in. And I would play it for the guys, and I'd show them the cover album. What is this? <laughs> you know, it really it generated the energy of the whole movie. You know, yeah, I had the Ronettes in there and stuff like that, but the, the Dolls, when that film was made, was not played in those bars. Right. The film takes place around 63, 64 in reality, you know? Um, but uh, no, it was something, and we met once, I think, in Italy or somewhere. Yeah. Long time there's a picture of us. Yeah. <laughs> you, you see, you see what I was dealing with. Yeah, there. I remember uh, we, we we started yeah. really getting to know each other when I was doing some number for uh, Boardwalk Empire. I think. Yeah, you came right. to the studio. Yeah, yeah. And you went, oh, David, you look great. Yeah. And I said, you look great. And then we've been kind of more constant since then. Yeah, yeah. You were at the rock and roll. Uh, there was a thing we did at Radio City Music Hall, which was a uh, right. uh, the, no the uh, the blues right. the blues show, which you you were um, uh, right with uh, Hubert Sumlin I played. Yeah, yeah, but you kept changing the look, and I didn't recognize you at times. You know? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it gives me <laughs> gives me freedom in the street. You could duck some people, you know. But uh, then, of course, we did uh, yeah Boardwalk Empire, then into vinyl in which we had an actor play you, actors play Johnny Thunders and all that. We did personality crisis in the last, in the end of the first, uh, of the pilot, and the, the song tears the house down, literally, the building collapses, which is based on, there's a shot of that building in the movie, the Mercer Street, right? Mm -hmm. The, uh, yeah. Yeah. We'll go to the man with the camera. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out who the hell we are. Um, and I'm curious. I'm curious. I, I always tell the story. Uh, when I saw um, Sajid Ray's Pate Panjali on TV, dubbed in English, um, I, have, I was about 14 or so, and um, I realized uh, that the people in the film, obviously, is made by the people that you usually see in the background of the films made about India by the British, by the Americans, by the French, et cetera. 
And I be, I, here, here, were, here were films um, by the people who actually are part of that culture. And that introduced me to the culture. And cinema opened that way for me, all, all foreign cinema, everything. I'm just curious about it. And, you know, going back way into, I'm now uh, gotten obsessed with uh, um, cuneiform. Not that I'm going to be doing any, but I, I like, you know, Akkad and the city of Ur. Interesting. So I go back to the Mesopotamian area. I can't get to the east. It's too much. I don't know yet. I'm too old for it. But meaning there isn't much time. I'm just curious about how people are, how they live, the music, because music is the essential core of, um, it's the purest form of art. You don't need anything for it. It's just the human body and the voice. You don't even need the voice. You can use rhythm. So music is really important. That's, oh, that's why I keep dr- being drawn back to the music films that David and I and Margaret have done, you know? All right, we have time for one more really good question. We'll, we'll go right here. I think I explained like the personality crisis thing in the song, about the song, in the movie. So I'm not going to go through that again. You know, it's funny. I have this radio show, right? And they're always asking me at the corporation, you should talk about the songs. And mentioned what songs you just played in the last set. And I was like, you can read it. It's going by on the screen. <laughs> what am I supposed to do, spoon feed these people? <clears throat> that uh, probably says a lot about my lack of uh, popularity. But um, <laughs> what am I going to do? But anyway, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you said, but... Um, I know, like, uh, John was playing that riff of personality crisis, and I just started singing that, you know. So uh, I think my lyrics are pretty good throughout my whole life, but uh, in the last couple of years, I think, you know, I've kind of... Uh, I'm a little, I think I'm a little more poetic and concise, you know, whereas, like... Personality crisis, I'm probably, like, uh, going on so long with it that it's like, you know, beating a dead horse. You know? <laughs> and uh, some of the songs, especially some of the songs in the movie, like uh, that Make and Rain, that's a pretty good song. Yeah. It's, I think it's just like, uh, could stand on its own probably without even music, you know. So. Which is the one that has... Uh... I feel sorry for you, the doctor said. No, You've got that's the human another condition, one. temptation to exist. That's the maimed happiness Maimed one. happiness, which I love, yeah. That's yeah. a sad song. I like it. They play that record uh, of maimed happiness at uh, Christmas time in Norway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. That's right. Everybody very depressed. I love that one. Oh, God. I got to just before we uh, plug uh, David's show, Mansion of Fun, yeah. is on um, Sirius XM. It's on. I listen to it on Sunday if I can uh, for the three hours, and uh, uh, 
I, it's been years I've been listening to it, yeah. and, I, and I, I really, I, the, the musicologist, a kind of an archaeology of music that he is, uh, it opened me up to other types of music from all over the world, amazing stuff. A lot of South, uh, South American music, too. Extra Molina, people, I, it's amazing. Um, and I'm constantly writing down this, have to get that copy, get a CD of this or whatever. But uh, I learned, um, also, interestingly enough, over the 10 years I've worked very closely with the music, tra- music uh, uh, in my movies. So uh, whether it goes back to Departed or uh, particularly Wolf of Wall Street or, oh, I don't know, a number, number of others, but... Um, I find by listening to his show that I'll hear something. I said, oh, my God, I haven't heard that in 40 years. He knows that one? Wow, let me write that one. And they're winding up in the pictures. And so um, what you can learn from his show and the uh, curating of it, of uh, music around the world, is really remarkable. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it goes to Jimmy Castor, hey, Leroy, your mom is calling, and she's mad. Um, and two bypassing there, uh, Maria Callas and Puccini going towards, you know, going towards uh, Molina, Antonio Molina, I think his name is this guy. Whoa, I mean, I hear a voice like that. Where's that coming from? Uh, then, Spain. Uh, wow. <laughs> I thought it was South America. I, and then, um, oh my God, you know, and, you know, usually wind up, usually wind up, but when you wind up with the jive bombers, now you're really going from Maria Callas to I'm, I'm a bad boy, the jive bombers, now you're there, you know. And it all fits. It all fits. And uh, you give um, wonderful um, philosophical advice throughout. (laughs) And uh, our friend and movie star and rock star, who's our engineer at Sirius, who's the one who divines those amazing voice breaks, those non sequiturs, Keith Roth is here tonight. I hope you like the movie. <laughs> All right. It was it was indeed. Uh, we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, there's another sold out screening that's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we can try that when we get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but everyone should come back. We'll talk about Harry Smith next time. Oh, Harry Smith. Yeah. yeah. But uh, wow. but thank you all so much for the film and for being here. Thank, thank you. you.